Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where it's all about increasing the profitability of your farm by working smarter, not harder. G'day and welcome to Profitable Farmer Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Grab a cup of tea. Um, sit back with a pen and paper. We've got a fantastic conversation um, for you today. As we roll into 2020 and um, navigate for many of us the incredibly long and extended run of dry seasons and the fire events of um, recent times, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, um, for me personally, it highlights a couple of things um, when I reflect on this more deeply. One is, and this is not probably going to be front of mind for each of you as listeners, but one of them is the importance potentially of off-farm income. Um, And with that, thinking deeply about our plans for having diversity in how we create wealth as farm business owners and farming families into the future, Um, And so if we are completely dependent on farming for our livelihood and for our wealth creation, I think we can be successful in that. But there are other ways to navigate and create wealth, um, as we all know, outside farming and leveraging that that core business, if you like, um, to create real wealth for our long-term future and for our children. And so it's with that in mind that I'm delighted once again to invite Terry Tran to Profitable Farmer. Terry is um, a great friend of ours. I know Greg and Robbo have very much enjoyed Terry's contribution to helping our clients learn some of the secrets to investing and wealth creation outside agriculture. Um, We have a really strong um, and We're very passionate about our partnership with Freedom Trader and Terry and his team. And um, what I want to do today is speak with Terry about exactly that, the importance of having diversity outside our farming enterprises and leveraging some of the um, brilliance that exists for us in share trading and in investing in building wealth long-term. So it's with that in mind, Terry, welcome to Profitable Farmer. Great once again to have you with us. Thanks, Jeremy, and always wonderful to be back as well. So I met Terry at the back of a um, Farm Owner Academy event two years ago where um, Terry is a, um, and I'll I'll touch on your background shortly, Terry, but you've been in Australia, I understand, for 40 years, arriving to us as a refugee. And so um, I remember being at the back of the room and listening to your first presentation. And um, perhaps what we might do is start with, I guess, the the aha moment that um, that happened at that event for you, um, perhaps in one of your first presentations to a large group of farming um, families. Um, let's launch into that. So would you mind sharing, Terry, firstly, your background, um, how it is you arrived to Australia and, um, and how now that has impacted your decision to be a mentor and coach in this space and to do what you do? Yeah. Yeah, Jeremy, uh, like you said, it's actually been my, uh, it's, we've just, last year was our 40th anniversary in the country. And back in 79, uh, post-Vietnam War, our, uh, after the communism took, pretty much took everything and, and uh, including the homes and everything that we lived in, 
my father was actually also a business a businessman. He, he he owned a fleet of trucks that delivered uh, of all things Coca Cola and um, and goods to you know to businesses and and families. And then they took all out all the trucks uh, and left literally left him one truck uh, to deliver for the for the on behalf of the communists. And it wasn't even his truck anymore. Um, we were given rations. But that rations never was able to feed the family, so we realized that we had to basically escape the country. And with, with that truck, he literally, uh, behind the scenes, sold the truck illegally, even though it was his truck. Uh, sold it into a couple of gold uh, gold bars, and those gold bars was our ticket to so-called freedom. And we had a, a very—I uh, come from a very big family where my mum's uh, one of eight, uh, and my father's also one of eight. So we had basically responsibility of sixteen people plus the, the grandparents and. They usually send always the oldest, you know, to, to go out there, explore, and hopefully be able to, you know, set up shop in a, hopefully a new country, and and uh, over time immigrate the entire family across. So my mother, my father, uh, we were chosen, uh, and two teenage, uh, my mother's two, um, I guess brothers as well, the oldest brothers, they came along, but at that time they were teenagers. So uh, my mother, my father, along with me, I was a two year old at the time, and after selling the gold bars. Uh, in the middle of the night, uh, bought our ticket to freedom. It was we thought it was going to be a big boat. It wasn't. It was an 18 meter wooden tug, um, and later found out it was actually over 300 people in this 18 meter tug. Um, we were headed for Darwin, but the truth is, it was really never the intention of them to ever make it. Uh, they just wanted to collect the money, uh, and so we being also lost out sea, uh, lost out at sea for three days. Uh, we ran out of uh, food, just water, um, and was slowly taking on board water as well because it was just too heavy uh, for the amount of people on board. And it was we were very lucky that because we were in that 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 strait uh, that the China Sea, where a lot of cargo ships uh, went back and forth between um, uh, uh, United States and Australia to to Singapore, and we were picked up by a Singaporean cargo ship. And on our way towards you know, sinking, uh, the cargo ship saw us, distress call, and they they saved us. And that was, our, I guess, our saving grace. Uh, my uncle also, my, my father's brother, my uncle, also uh, was in another boat. He actually never made it. They, 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 they sunk out of sea. So definitely an incredible journey uh, that somehow we made it um, out of sheer luck. Uh, we were then transported to a nearby refugee camp off the coast of Malaysia. Uh, unlike the Christmas island of today that we see, you know, people actually are housed properly, although there are complaints. Uh, back then, we were just sent to an island. Uh, and what there was was just we uh, they were, we were given tents and we had to set up a, a tent there and that's how we lived for the next six months in a tent. Um, Christmas Eve though, uh, back in '78, uh, unfortunately uh, a storm hit and uh, a tree came down on our tent and uh, it missed me for some reason. Um, my, my mother told me it missed me, barely missed her, uh, but it did uh, go on top of my father, so he was crushed in the tree and uh, and there you go. Uh, a 22-year-old, my mother at the time, became a widow, towing around a two-year-old, two which was me, uh, and also having to look after two teenage brothers as well. So that's all we had. Um, and the Australian government, thank God, um, we had a choice between Canada, Australia, and, and uh, United States. They opened their doors. And Australia saw, saw my mum's circumstances and um, uh, was first to put up their hand uh, and uh, accept our family into the country. So that's, that, that's one of the main reasons why you know, I do what I do today. Um, and also another thing too, Jeremy, a, a lot of people don't know too is after my father passed away, there, there was a very kind-hearted man which um, which ended up uh, helping my mother because of the circumstances and uh, provided the, the funeral, you know, enough money to 
bury my father and uh, rather than a cardboard box. And that's where I saw my first, um, even as a young child, the first sign of, um, of uh, uh, I guess, abundance thinking where someone who I thought, which we actually ended up finding out that he actually did not have much money. He was just a fisherman. But because of the, 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 the pain that he saw my mother go through, uh, even though as a poor man, he actually gave um, enough money to bury my father as well as also provide my mother with, at that time, 100 US dollars, which back in 79 was a lot of money to say that, you know, take the money, this is what you do need. And my first lesson of, you know, of giving back and paying it forward uh, was learned from this man. So, uh, of course, we came to the country, except in the country, my mother, my poor mother did not know a single word of English. And at that time, I also was, uh, I went into a school, which I was the, I was the only Asian in the entire school. So whenever there was a school photo, the annual photo, uh, you could easily spot me because I was the only Amongst all the blondes and um, and brunettes, I was the only black hair Asian, and that everyone always asked me, "How come I've got black hair?" And I was I just told them I actually was born blonde, but somehow I just turned black, and everyone accepted me, didn't bully me. So I was actually very lucky on that in, in that point in time. And I saw my mother struggle financially, and I knew that uh, you know my biggest goal was to to firstly look after, be able to provide for my mother, and not uh, have her go through. But she was going through uh, two jobs: one in the morning washing, uh, uh, going to a factory work, uh, making metal caps for Coca-Cola, <laughs> ironically, and then uh, going home, learning English in the afternoon, and then having to go wash dishes at night at an Indian restaurant. So I saw that financially, the struggle, and somehow I wanted that financial freedom for my mother, and then of course for myself, and then now being able to pay it forward and help other people, which is one of my greatest, um, I guess, um, happiness that, that, that I get when I help people now. Wonderful, Terry. I really so much appreciate you sharing the, the story that you have. Um, you mentioned your ticket to freedom and it helps me understand now why your company perhaps is called Freedom Trader. Um, yeah. That's a whole new depth to um, the meaning of the company that you now lead. So thank you for that. Um, jumping forward to two years ago when I, when I met you um, at a Farm Owner Academy event, I think we had 200 farmers Mm. in the room would you mind just touching on that epiphany that you had um in those moments where you presented to to 200 farmers uh yeah after i i i i i, I did my, my teaching on on stage and, I, and then i sat back down and uh i was sitting on the back of the room and i was you know always thinking you know my, my main purpose at the time was you know i want to just uh show as many people that financial freedom can be had you know a little bit of work a little bit of definitely a, the, the right knowledge with a bit of work, uh, everybody can actually have that. But then as I was, I was looking across the room, you know, a lot of people always said, you know, somehow I'd be, I, somehow in my back of my mind, it felt, felt like I would, I would be the last person, a city bloke like me, also Asian, coming in into, you know, a country, country towns and helping farms across Australia. And then all of a sudden I had this epiphany, which I, I did share with, with Jeremy at the time. Uh, a tear came down my, on my, on my, my, my face and I realised Wow, it, it just felt like it was. A, it came through a full circle where, back forty years ago, at that time it was a forty-year anniversary. I was accepted by this beautiful country. You know, people call it the lucky country. It definitely is the lucky country, and of course, it is a country, but it's made up of incredible people that are that are giving, and it's the farmers of our country which make up this country. And that epiphany was being accepted forty years ago, but now going full circle and now being able to pay it forward. Now also. Give it back. Give back to these people that accepted me and my mum 
into this country and giving us the incredible life that I've been able to create as well. So that was that epiphany that I realized. And it was that purpose and that why of why I do this. And these days I just, every time we've, we have farmers into the program, we've got about uh, 200 farmers now into the program. And it's probably one of my greatest joys that, yes, I help other businesses, but farming is true to my heart that I'm now being able to give back and it just makes me extremely happy. It's wonderful. Um, and I think I can remember that conversation distinctly with you where we touched on the fact that Australia has been built on the backbone of agriculture and the mm. amazing characters and individuals that have um, have navigated the agricultural industry over our sort of 220 years. So it does sort of fit in mm. nicely, doesn't it, that, that you now find yourself in a position where you get to give back to the, the people who help create the country that has been kind to you. That's great. That's a, a great story. And thank you for sharing that. Now, with that in mind, Terry, um, my next question to you is why is it that farmers, in your opinion, having now worked with them for so long, make such good investors? I think, unlike city folk, farmers have, I call it the three Ps. And what those three Ps are is the first P being uh, definitely persistence because farmers have that in spades, you know, um, especially, you know, times like this where there's been drought, a long period of drought. There's been, um, you know, very affected by weather conditions. Um, also, sometimes commodity prices as well. Some are squeezed also the big, by big, uh, the big retailers as well, like Woolies and Coles uh, for the produce that they produce. So they've got that persistence to, to keep on going despite the hard times. So that's the, my, what I call the first P. Uh, the other second P is, of course, farmers are very process-driven. You know, you're, you're given that task. You, you know, you wake up at four or five in the morning, get things done, and you know every single day you wake up, you, it's, it's a must-do. And it's very process-driven that in order to have a successful farm, uh, th- these tasks need to be done. And I think the, most impo- the, the biggest important P that uh, is missing in many, many city folk and which make them very uh, non-successful investors is because farmers, unlike city folk, they've got the, the third P, which is uh, patience. So... Farmers, of course, you know, you plant the seed and you wait for harvest time. And there's that period of time that in between you do what you need to do, but there's always that time of period that you, you know you just need to wait. Uh, and uh, same as investing. You know, when you plant the seed and you make your investment, you don't necessarily see the investment uh, come to fruition and the profits come to fruition the next day. Sometimes it might take a week if you're lucky, great. But then sometimes it might take two months, three months. And the, the reason why our farms are so successful is because they're used to the farming side they allow that time to and allow that 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 investment to you know, to, to 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 basically blossom and, and bloom. The city folk, however, once they they invest, a lot of them, are, you know, where's the money? Where's my profit? Oh, should I sell out? And and they get affected by a lot of the you know the, the headline news and things like that. And um, they don't have that patience. They don't have that persistence, and they don't have that process driven mentality. And that's why farmers, by all means, the best investors that I've ever seen. Uh, only because really in the end it's uh they've already got it in inside them thank you and and just to add, add to that and i think um it's consistent with what you're saying i think farmers just by virtue of the industry they're in understand and navigate risk every day of their lives and yes. um look at ways of making large and small decisions always with that balance of, of risk and return in mind um, mm. and I think again those skill sets that perhaps we don't appreciate can translate I would imagine really well across into investments outside farming 
Oh, definitely. And 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 in addition to that too, Jeremy, is like when I when I show people investing, they always say, you know, isn't it risky? And yes, it is definitely very risky if one, you don't know what you're doing. And two, if you always look at the upside. So my first point of call is I always, you know, when I teach people and you was probably, you know, even in our, in our program, we always teach that for the first three weeks, it's all about risk management. I don't even teach uh, students, you know, how to make money. That, that part is later. It's always about, you know, if you protect your downside first, the upside will look after itself. I call it, I call the upside and the profit a byproduct because if you just uh, follow the process and always protect your downside, the profit is just a byproduct of good, of, of good risk management. And I'm willing to predict it for our listeners that that just lands so neatly with their philosophy on how they run their farms. Yeah, and, 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 and this so is why, again, why it makes farm, why farmers are, so, are such great investors because they already have that built in because of, uh, of running their farm. They know that. And, Absolutely. Yeah, and then taking that skill set across to investing just makes, a perfect, just makes perfect, perfect sense. Yeah, perfect. So um, how important do you think off-farm investment and building an off-farm portfolio is for an Australian farming family? I think a year ago when I, when I started you know, teaching this to uh, and we had our very first farming, you know, I, I said that from, you know, logically I said that you know, it's important to when you, whenever you're running a business, whether it's a farm, um, a pharmacy, any business out there, they, you should always have something outside the business. Uh, main reason is one, uh, gives you a peace of mind. So no matter what happens to the business, the farm, uh, you're always your fa- yourself and your family are always looked after. That's that's one of the main reasons. But two, I think uh, by by learning how to invest as well, the the, the metrics of running and, and selecting great companies and great investments, uh, great stocks companies for the investment, the metrics is are exactly the same as farming. It's like uh, knowing the cash flows. The, the uh, you know does the investment actually make a profit? Uh, the the company itself, the stock itself. And if those those metrics don't pass, then really it's not, it should not be investment. And if you, you know, even Warren Buffett, the great Warren Buffett, one of the best investors on the planet, even says this. Uh, his quote is that I'm a better I'm a better uh, businessman because uh, I'm an investor, but also a, a better investor because I'm a businessman. Mm-hmm. So they tie up very 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 closely. And a year ago, I, I said, you know, logically that makes sense. But then as of late, because of you know the the, uh, the drought. And then, of course, now the the, the, uh, the very bad bushfires, I think that's even you know, solidified my understanding that why it's vital that uh, the uh, every farmer must have something outside whatever they're doing right now in their farm because then it gives them a peace of mind that, you know, uh, over time that will grow and prosper. And in, in, in times of need, that, that side of things will take care of the cash flow when this side dries up. And that is such an important point, that last point, is, is once we've been doing this for some time and we've built up um, a portfolio or a nest egg outside, outside the industry or outside our farming interests, one that can be so important for family succession, mm. um, for retirement planning, obviously, so that you aren't needing to re- um, rely on the farm necessarily to um, live comfortably into your latter years. Yeah. But, the point that really comes up for me when I travel through these fire-affected areas and, and speak to drought-affected farmers is that nest egg can be a massive support to cash flow when our core business um, has, for whatever reason, incurred a small or even a really significant loss in any given year. Um, so 
off farming, I think often as farming families, we're so focused on maximizing or optimizing or getting the best returns and the best focus we can from our farming enterprise. Mm. Often we pay a little bit of lip service to the nursing income or the teaching income or the off-farm contract spraying income or the impact of how much our super fund might be growing or or we're probably so busy often that we just neglect and don't quite give enough time or attention Mm. to making a start in the direction of creating wealth perhaps through share trading outside of agriculture. What's your comment there, Terry? Uh, totally agree because um, I think the, in terms of, you know, my goal for farmers is that when you start up the portfolio, it will be, um, it's not a get rich quick overnight type thing. It's where cash flow comes in. And I remember clearly when Andrew and Greg showed me the, uh, the, the chart on screen of, of, you know, returns off a farm. In actual fact, over you know a broad a broad sense over time over a 20, 30 year period, the returns on, over farm was sub was actually quite subpar, and it's the cash that the farm brings in. But then the question is, you know, what do you do with that cash? And that cash, if it's outside, for example, um, i.e., uh, you know, the, the markets, the stock market, if done properly, you know, can generate that 10, 15, 20 percent per annum, which farms actually cannot have, and that's unleveraged as well. And it's a, it's also a far safer side where because you're now, you're now diversifying you know people say you know i buy stocks whatever you know you're, you're not buying stocks you're actually uh, investing in um in another company that's listed that's bigger and then that brings in cash flow that brings in uh, capital gains and then that you know uh, over time that portfolio will grow reinvested and it will grow and in time will potentially even uh, as more cash flow goes into it potentially even overtake the farm income and if both if if both things go well, i.e., a great a great farm year, a great crop year, great, the investment goes well. You've got of of two sides going well. But then at any point in time, if one of them, you know, especially on farming, which is more volatile, that doesn't go well, then that side will take will take care of and take over the other side. And then uh, it just steadies and balances, uh, uh, the, you know, the cash flow from 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 the family point of view. Perfect. Thank you. So Terry, what um what what is um a broad outline of the philosophy that you and Freedom Trader take to investing. Would you mind just giving us an insight there? Because I think there'll be a lot of listeners um, perhaps that are uh, new or somewhat novices in the space of off-farm investing um, that might have had an experience, um, had a negative experience, Mm. and that might have kept them from really sort of leaning in in this area. Um, what, what's your philosophy on investing? Yeah, my biggest philosophy, I think, number one is that we should never look at uh, the the, cap, the 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 potential capital gain or profit that you see from investment. Uh, like I said earlier, always look at the downside first, protect the downside before the upside, because the upside actually, in actual fact, will look after itself. And to always focus on the very best companies out there. There's yeah, ten thousand listed companies, uh, you know, stocks that are, that are out there. Uh, around not only our country but around the world, and in actual fact, uh, what I normally want to you know, show farmers uh, show farmers is that in actual fact, out of those ten thousand companies, only about one hundred and fifty of them make the cut. So, in terms of the metrics we teach, that once you filter them out, really about one hundred to one hundred and fifty companies only make the cut in terms of as, as a great investment that you can keep over time. So that makes our job very easy as well because then we filter out all the rubbish. And we're now focusing on the very best companies of which provide the best returns over time and also stable companies because my other philosophy too is 
there is no point in making it, being able to say create wealth and create freedom, right? If you can't sleep well at night, that's the last thing you want because you want to also have a good night's sleep. So while you're creating the portfolio, you want to make sure that one, there are safe investments, growing investments, but also being able to sleep well at night when you invest in these companies. So that's the other, the other thing too. So looking at the downside before the upside and also being able to sleep well when you invest in and trade these type of companies. Thank you, Terry. Would you, what is the premise broadly that you use to make that determination um, and deselect those 850 companies from the 1,000? How, how do you arrive to um, determining that those 150 companies yeah. are the ones to invest in? Yeah. Actually, Jeremy, it was uh, 10,150. 10, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry, so 10,000. Exactly. It's, it's literally only less than 1%, Jeremy, that actually made the cut. Uh, and those are simple metrics that potentially um, even inside as running a farm, it's the same thing. It's like, uh, for example, net profit. Does the actual company itself make a net profit? And the funny thing is a lot of people uh, get uh, sucked into uh, you know, tips from family and friends. They invest in a company and then they realize later down the track after they've lost money is that the company or the stock they've bought actually has never made a cent. They've just based it on, you know, there's a blue sky. Maybe one day this company will, will make money. So that's one one premise that it, it must make money, uh, must, must make a net profit. Uh, same like a, a farm, it has to make a net profit at the end of the year. Uh, the other part is uh, return on return on equity. You know the the invested capital that the company has uh, that shareholders put in is there a, a high return on those invested capital uh, that the equity they put in? Return on assets is there a return? Like if you've bought a farm for a million dollars, is there a return on an annual basis from that whole asset, that million dollar farm? Mm. Is there a return on that? And I like again. Uh, for example, we use we, we utilize eight percent. Most companies out there do not uh, pass this criteria. They've got uh, supposedly you know a great name, great branding, great marketing, but actual fact, is it a good investment? Probably not because it doesn't pass that. And then finally, you know, cash flow, free cash flow. Does the the the, the stock or the company have free cash flow like a farm? If you're bleeding out cash flow and there's no positive cash flow coming in through the you know through the doors, then over time that business will fail. And same as when you invest in a stock, uh, that that stock needs to meet basically cash flow criteria as well. So they, they're the, the four main ones. And of course, we've got another six more that, that gets hacked on top and that will eliminate even another. It will, it will halve the amount that mm-hmm. go further. So you know, people say, oh, uh, this seems quite you know, a daunting process. Not really because uh, it's actually quite automated. As long as you know the criteria, in actual fact, these days there's apps out there which help you do the, the job and it can literally be done in, uh, in under 10 seconds. Thank you, Terry. So yeah. there, are, there are some mindsets perhaps that, and some beliefs that people have around um, equity investing. So mm. I know for me in my background, if I reflect back, my grandfather who was a, a really successful investor in his time always talked about Australian stocks only and he yep. talked about blue chips only and he yep. talked about buying and holding them forever. And he his, his belief, and I, I um, am really keen for your comment, is, is that share traders and share trading is risky. Right. Um, I wonder, could you comment on that? Because I would be willing to wager that there are some untruths in some of those perhaps more conservative and conventional statements that we often hear as mm. they relate to um, share trading and investing. Yeah, definitely. I, and I think one, one myth that I need the, to, to bust straight away is that even though we, we say that we share trade, we don't necessarily share trade because uh, 
there's, there's two types of traders. One, which is what they call intraday trading, where they're, they're buying and selling on a daily basis. So they buy in the morning, they sell by the afternoon. Mm-hmm. We are definitely not that. We are not into that, that game. It is a hard game because these days with computerized trading, uh, a lot of these big firms have the upper hand anyway, utilizing computer algorithms. So that's a game that you, one, you'll never, you'll never win. The other thing is um, when we invest, um, I, I'm actually, I'd probably say that we're more of an active investor rather than a, 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 an active trader because most times when we buy something, we may not sell out for weeks or months in time because we want to give it enough room and enough time for the undervalued stock to, to be discovered by other fund managers that, uh, that's, oh, wow, it's cheap now, it's undervalued, we should buy something. So that's another philosophy that I forgot to mention too is we always want to buy something undervalued. So if we know, for example, say Telstra is worth, um, if, you, if you calculate, it's only worth maximum $4. And there was a point in time when, all the media was saying that it's a great dividend paying stock. It's a blue chip. And that's the other word, blue chip. It can be a misnomer because blue chip just means it's big. It's, uh, it's stable, but not necessarily. But uh, if, it's, if Telstra is only worth $4 and all these newspapers are saying you should buy it because of the dividend yield, uh, that's paying a great dividend because it beats the bank's, bank's interest. But if you're paying $6 for a $4 stock and now, for, and now all of a sudden Telstra has dropped down to $3.50, you made a mistake by buying it at six dollars because you've paid you've paid way too much for it just like if you if you bought and sold a farm if you paid overpaid for the farm it's yep. very hard to make capital or make money on when you eventually maybe selling the farm right so same thing as on the investing side you always want to buy something undervalued so if you if you um, were to that myth about buying something blue chip and buying things that only pay a dividend that's definitely not true because in actual fact we don't uh, focus on the Australian market even though we do live in Australia I think it's important that we broaden our mind to the, the global market because uh, if we look on, if we open up our fridge, for example, Jeremy, Jeremy and even our, our, our medication cabinet, think about it. How many things and how many products are technically, uh, they might be Australian made because it's manufactured here, but however, in terms of the, the, the parent company, where is it actually listed? It's unlikely to be Australian. Most medications are definitely not Australian. Uh, most companies and most things that we use today are definitely not Australian. They're either Asian, uh, American, uh, primarily America. Uh, even on computer, when we turn up, for example, we do search, it's Google. We go on social media, it's Facebook. So these companies, in actual fact, have never paid a cent in dividend, but yet they're now going toward you know, basically their trillion dollar companies. And how did they get there? Is because one, they didn't pay a dividend. The reason why they don't pay a dividend is because they know for a fact that they can generate a higher return on the cash they keep in every time there's a net profit they reinvest that profit and make it a higher return and then that reflects in their share price so that uh misnomer about you know you must buy only blue chip companies and at any at any point in time sometimes blue chip companies also make bad investments because uh it it's it, its growth has sort of peaked and it doesn't it starts slowing down so now should you hold on that that stock forever maybe not if the, if the growth starts slowing, you'll see the share price start declining. And why would you hold a share price, that a, a stock that is no longer growing uh, forever because down a track, it's going to be worth nothing uh, and maybe even going towards, you know, administration or bankruptcy. So you want to be able to monitor that and see that in way, way ahead of time. So uh, I guess a roundabout uh, way to answer your question is that definitely not just about blue chips, but uh, being able to invest in stable companies that are growing companies uh, and they may not necessarily be blue chips, but also investing in companies sometimes that we we understand and we know, or the products and services that we use, i.e., Facebook, Google, uh, Kraft, Heinz, example, uh, and 
At the same time, uh, the that dividend, you know, investing in stocks that only invest in dividends because of the dividend, uh, definitely also not the best idea. Uh, and at the same time, only invest in Australia, probably not as well because most growing companies uh, should uh, are actually listed um, overseas. Yeah. So did I? Yeah. Sorry. Sorry for that sort of no, long winded, but there was a lot of there was just a lot of things that came up to my mind, and I wanted to, you know, to bust all these myths and untruths about that, you know, that, that long-term philosophy. Yeah. It's perfect, Terry. I, I think what really appeals to me here is I've spent a lot of time doing due diligence on a lot of companies, um, mm. often on a client's behalf. And yep. the method that you've ab- ab- advocated, perhaps similar to the Warren Buffett philosophy, is to apply the, the metrics that apply to small business to big business to make sure that you're getting a good deal and that you're buying businesses with a strong track record and a strong projection of future yes. growth and future profitability. So it, it's, it, it speaks really um, clearly to me that, that your methods are underpinned by really rigorous um, practical business due diligence practice. So thank you. Yeah, really, definitely. Really, yeah, and, and it's really nice to have some of those myths that I think a lot of us carry that that risk uh, investing overseas is risky, that, that these tech companies and these new companies um, are risky. There's so many myths there that I think I want to encourage listeners um, who are looking at going in this direction, really just check in on some of the the lessons and some of the myths that might have been passed to you and um, allow those to be checked by someone with, with Terry's background and track record, which is quite significant. Terry, one of the things I know that you do is that you're very transparent and open in the investments that you're making and yes. um, the results that you're achieving and um, sharing all of that with your members as part of their learning journey. Could you just speak to that? And and also perhaps just a bit of an oversight as to um, your, the process you take people through to go from where they are to becoming really competent and successful investors and clients with you. Sure. Um, a number of, when I, I, I've been teach, I've been um, running or managing people's money for over 15 years. Uh, invested for over 20, about I think it's my 22nd year now. And four years ago, I decided to start teaching, but I thought, okay, there's a lot of these newsletters that are out there. And the truth is these newsletters that are produced, most of the time they're produced because uh, people pay subscription fees, but they, they, they recommend a stock. But in actual fact, other people who are writing it actually putting their own money into these stocks that they, they talk about or they recommend. And what better way to do it is once I teach something, is to have an open and transparent record where I show every single person my current portfolio, uh, the uh, our exit portfolio, which is things that we've bought and sold, so they're crystallized either losses or crystallized gains, uh, and that was a transparency side. And then at the same time, also show people what I'm looking at buying over the coming week, and I, I teach them, you know, what to look out for anyway, so they they know what 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 and why I'm buying. Most important is why I'm buying, not just what I'm buying, what I'm buying. Mm-hmm. And what trans- transpired out of that was that I realized, you know, a lot of people who get into this game is that even though you learn the theory, you may not be confident from day one. And those reports by accident, they became almost like a, um, a confidence builder because, you know, how good is it that, uh, yes, you've learned the theory, then they, they find the stock, but then, you know, the click of the mouse, because it's all, everything's all online these days, you know, the click of the mouse to buy, physically buy the stock, 
there's that that sense of nerves that oh you know did i make the right decision but when they see the report that terry is also buying the same thing and they found the same thing then straight away they go realize oh i've done the right thing my process is actually correct because terry's about to invest in the same thing that i've actually found myself so that those reports was really for that and then when they make those investments and they make 10 and out of the 10 they get eight or nine right and they've made money out of it straight away there's no need for other psychology lessons literally their confidence just just builds up and then they do another 10 another 10 investments that go out and then again they get 80 to 90 percent of those right and then now then they know that they've got a solid uh, a solid founding so that transparency also transpired to giving our students confidence and that's why um, I'm proud of my own results but at the same time uh, in throughout social media that you'll see is that uh, I'm actually more even more prouder because I've, I've been able to prove the fact that the system that I've been able to teach is replicable where whether the, 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 the student's brand as a brand newbie that never even touched or experienced the fair share market before or they've had a bad experience but if they let go of all of that and they just follow the system systematically and process driven uh, the the students now um, you know we've we've had so many students in the last last year actually they've just put on social media that they've returned 25-30% for the last year and it just makes me really happy because a lot of the times funny enough last year my my result was um, was actually even lower than a lot of our students so our, our students are now beating me on our results which is actually quite incredible because these guys are new they're only been in the market maybe two or three years but their results are now even better than mine, which just shows the fact that uh, that they've actually, yeah, they've they've taken it potentially either to another level, or uh, they've been able to learn everything and and implement everything. So um, yeah, and that's what uh, actually why I do it for. Perfect. Would you share one of those stories? Can you think of a farming family who might have started with you a few years ago and perhaps had very low levels of skill and. Um, didn't quite know where to start. Can you share a story of someone who's tracked with you for some time and, yeah. and perhaps even without naming their names, um, just share the sort of results that, that that family might be achieving now? Okay. I'll share one farmer, uh, one farming one and one yep. non-farming one. So a farming one, um, okay, without mentioning names, is that they they had a uh, – their parents were invested in the stock market way back, uh, lost a ton of money in the, uh, during the GFC because, you know, people say, oh, uh, you know, what, why have you, you've invested in the market, you know, what if another GFC or recession happens and that sort of thing? And their parents actually got caught out in the GFC because they, they actually gave the money to the financial planner. And uh, I, I, uh, I believe from what he said, uh, that financial planner ended up losing uh, three quarters of the, of the father's money. And then he was scared off for the next 10 years of, of looking at the stock market ever again. And he thought, you know, he'll never ever do that again and trust one trust people with their money with his own money but two also get in, invested in the stock in the the stock market because of the dad's experience but then once he came into our into the program then he realized it's actually a very process safe approach of investing uh definitely not a, not an overnight success it took him about six months but then when i looked at his track record uh it ended up being i think it was 93 percent success rate so every investment Every 100 investments he made, 93 of them were actually profitable. And it was just very process-driven. Um, and being a farmer, the, diff the advantage that he had and the psychology he had was we also teach that, you know, when a stock, when we buy a stock, we what they call position size, we, we don't put all our money in what first, put all our eggs in the one basket and buy a ton of, you know, that stock. We, we, we position size accordingly where we don't take very much risk on that one stock in anticipation that, uh, that 
not that we've made the wrong decision, but uh, the stock, because of the markets, you know, the nature of the markets, people might you know, sell down the stock even further, and then it drops again. But as a farmer, what he ended up doing is he did the research and realized, you know, he's valued the company. He bought more of the stock and continued buying more as it even went down, the, th- the second purchase, third purchase. And then once fund managers out there realized the value of it, they started buying to, and piling into that, that same stock and then pushed that stock back up. And so by the time he's sold, uh, if, he's, if he's taken three or four or five positions in that stock, by the time he sold, literally every single one of them made money. And and um, I actually saw his record, and it was actually quite very consistent. Uh, so that was one example where where it changed his mindset that a process driven system that he thought was very risky at first in the stock market just changed his mindset to be to realizing if he just follows the process and gets the results he's getting, then he just continues uh, doing that. So that's that's on the farmer side. Uh, the okay. other, yeah, the other one was non farming would be uh, where uh, the students actually be. Um, been with me for from a very day one, day one now. And over the last four years, consistently, he's been able to achieve that 15% per annum. And it, it's just and complete newbie, which is uh, incredible. And with not, without, also without taking much risk as well. Yeah, so um, yeah, so they're two sort of very different stories, um, but one from farmer and one from a non-farmer. Fantastic. It just seems to me too that the method that you've developed and the process that people follow um, with you is so risk aware um, and diversified within itself such that people aren't taking massive risks and won't stand to lose a lot of money just by virtue of how you structured um, their practice. Is that a fair comment? Definitely. Um, uh, we, uh, that's, that, that was why I, you know, you said, um, you know, named a couple of the philosophies that we follow is that, you know, risk management is paramount and we want them to be able to sleep well at night. So no matter what investing they've, they've, they've invested in, plus also what, how they, they've, they've created this portfolio. We want to make sure that whoever does this is able to one, not only get the returns, but get it in a safe way so they can sleep well at night. Wonderful. Thank you. So Terry, I'm a farmer. In a good year, I make $250,000 profit. Yes. Pay my taxes. Um, I've provided for my family. I've got some cash spare my yep. natural instinct is to focus on upgrading my plant looking at the neighbor's block to buy looking at a, a farm a lease opportunity but but my time i'm being a, a typical <laughs> conventional farmer i am comfortable looking at allocating cash profits back into what i know yeah um ha- what would your advice be to that farmer on, mm. on how they might start where they've got a cash surplus? First question. Secondly, farmer B might have just made a significant loss yep. and might have a strong balance sheet but be really short on cash because of the drought or another incident. Mm. Um, my question to you as well is can they make a start? Or right. do you have to wait until they've got some free cash flow? Um, in order to to start looking at a diversified portfolio, would you mind just speaking to those two scenarios sure, and, sure. and how I'm, those those two families might get started? Okay, for the, uh, let's go to the first scenario first, where uh, there's you know significant cash is coming, cash flow is great. Uh, what one? I think what my main uh, my main question is uh, that I'll ask the farmer is one is that are they are they comfortable with the current farm they have and you know if they're not and they haven't scaled to the you know the, the level that they want to then maybe making that that investment into the next you know buying that next block of land to expand that uh, if it means economies of scale 
I think those things should be done because that then brings um, even more future cash flow to invest in, say, things like that that we do in into the stock side. So, so if, however, if they've already reached a capacity where they think, yep, I'm comfortable with that, then that's different. Then they, uh, I, I believe that they, they, they sh- uh, definitely should start on this side. Reason being is that it's very important that, and I see this not just on, on farming business, but every business out there, that um, a lot of business, what they end up doing is they, they reinvest and reinvest back into the same business. But so they, they essentially have all the eggs in that, that one basket. Mm-hmm. And if something goes, is, is to go wrong with that, with, is to go wrong with that egg, then, then they're financially they're unstable and in trouble uh, with themselves and, and their family. So, I definitely would say start diversifying away and start that process. And one, I guess, myth I want to bust is that unlike prop investment, where you need to save up, save up a significant significant you know, deposit and then go to a bank and borrow another you know, half a million, a million dollars to buy that property, and it's just a one asset. On the stock investing side, even if you, you if you were to come to me and say, Terry, I've got you know, a quarter of a million dollars and I want to start right now, my 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 first point of course is say one, even if you've done the course and you're very confident, I'll scale that uh, back down to a tenth of that to twenty five thousand. Start with that first, run with that for the next three months to six months, and be comfortable with one the system and two uh, the I guess that the platform you're using and being confident enough that to get the returns on a small scale. Because it scaling up, I always say, is very, very easy. But it's very important that if you start on a small scale, one that you, then you can sleep well at night and follow the system to, exact, to exactly what it is without having to think about how much money I'm making. It's just a process-driven thing. And once you get that running, then you can scale up down a track. And that's when, you know, uh, when for example, if you know for a fact that, say, 250000 comes in, it does not mean that every the whole 250 needs to go here. It may mean that, okay, I'll... I'll start saving up for, for say, some land down a track. Fifty thousand go there. Uh, one or two hundred thousand go here, and maybe another one or two hundred thousand go somewhere else as well. So this is not about you know a all or nothing approach. It's, it's about slowly building up the confidence and then building and getting into it. And then it's important that the farm, uh, whoever gets into this, um, is that they they get the runs on the board and they're confident that down the track, if I want to invest the the full two fifty, they can without losing a night's sleep. So until they get to that stage, they should not be doing that. It's 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 just way too much stress to make it work from day one. So that's from yeah, uh, farmer number one. Yes. Farmer number two is if they're in, I guess, dreaded need of uh, of cash flow and because of all the drought. My recommendation is definitely for me. I believe personally uh, is that the farm needs because it's the main source of cash at this point in time is to get the farm back up and running first. Because the last thing you want is. Yes, investments go out elsewhere, but your mind's over here. So that farm needs to be uh, immediately fixed up. Find ways to fix that up because that other side, which I teach, it does take time. It's not an overnight fix. And it's important that you get the cash flow uh, from the farm working back. And then from there, then you work forward. Thank you. What about yeah. if I've got a strong balance sheet? If I've got a $5 million asset and a $1 million debt. Right. Oh. And I've had a loss and I'm tight on cash. Right. Because of the drought, I've actually got a bit of time on my hand to learn and to focus in this area. Is it is it reasonable to look to call on some of that equity? Yes. To yes. start in this direction and, and use a, a small chunk of the equity that I've created over time to start building my investment muscle? 
Uh, definitely. And, and if you're utilizing, I, I guess, equity from, from hard assets like property or farm, uh, the interest rates are usually, much, are usually much lower. So therefore, if you were to draw upon that, that equity and start you know, going to this way uh, and preparing it for you know, the good times that happen, I think, yes, it's, it's worthwhile starting because it will take that, uh, that six to, to, say, three months to, one, learn the process, but also get used to the process. But even if you were to draw on the equity and you get that financing for, say, half a million dollars, I would never recommend you start with the entire equity anyway. So it just means that uh, utilizing a, a, a chunk, a, a small part of the equity to begin the process of learning, getting used to it. And then once you're comfortable with that and you're, you're getting returns on the board and you're comfortable, then you scale up and then draw out more and more equity out of that. Because if you think about it too, Jeremy, is if equity is costing you, say, on the bank, these days interest rates are so low, uh, four, five, six, seven percent I'm not sure what on the farming side what they're charging you guys. But yeah, but if on the other hand, you're able to generate that, that 10, 15, 20%, it really makes sense because you're literally taking cheap cheap financing to have, to be able to help you make the returns over here. And just just to be clear on that, none of that is negative gearing or margin lending or anything that is risky in and of itself, right? That's, no. that's just leveraging equity that you have and looking to achieve in a risk-aware environment a greater return than the interest that you're paying. It seems it seems reasonable to me. Yeah, and, and correct. And uh, what you said is very important is that uh, a lot of people, they, they go into stock investing and they start doing uh, gearing products like CFDs, options, uh, and even margin lending. And I, I would say stay away from that. And we teach that just to stay away from that because when you allow gearing, utilizing stocks itself, because of the volatile nature of, of stock prices, the last thing we want you know, to happen is, is you know, get a mar- what they call a margin call and you've got to top up the account. But utilizing, uh, uh, I guess, land equity or farm equity it's a very different ballpark because one, the, the finance is much cheaper and two, you never get uh, caught up upon, you know, by the, the margin lender, so to speak. So you're never forced to sell. You can sell when you want to sell and not be forced to sell when you don't, when it's not the right time. Thanks, Terry. Um, one more question, if I could. Sure. You mentioned media before. There's um, always a lot of hot air and a lot of emotion, a lot of sentiment out there in the media. That's what makes it sell. Yes. I met with... Um, and heard a presentation from the Comsec chief in Craig James in Wagga recently, and he said, "When you pair all that away, our economy and the investment environment has really never been stronger." Um, and it was really encouraging to hear that from someone who's so well um, qualified and respected mm. in this space. What's your assessment of the Australian environment at this time, and and perhaps investing more broadly and globally? Yep. Uh- I actually never. I've I've seen um, you know the, uh, uh, the the person you talk about, Craig Jones, uh, present before, and uh, yeah, if, if if that's what he says, I actually admire him because there's been a lot of hot air about you know panics and recession type talk, and that's happened. Yeah, it wasn't. It's not been recent. It's been about a year and a half ago it started, and I recall back in November, December last time when the markets were actually dropping, and you know there, there was all this fear about recession stuff, but. All you need to do is there are a number of factors which we actually do show in, inside the course as well uh, that will tell you ahead of time what's actually happening. For example, if you talk about recessions, generally when these type of bad times happen, generally it's when interest rates are very high. They're definitely not very high at the moment at all. In actual fact, they're the opposite. They're very low. Yep. The other thing is that uh, unemployment is usually also very high. And we've never had a better, really, in the in the end, a better employment environment. Where, in actual fact, it's harder for for uh, employee employers to get skilled staff 
because that people are demanding more pay. So the the employment um uh, the the employment in terms of the employment unemployment is actually very uh, it's very it's very strong. So when there's when people have employment, what ends up happening? They've got money in their in their in their in their pocket, and then why? And what happens there is that they go out and they spend. They they're able to go out there and not and have their dinners at restaurants. They have to buy what they really need to buy. There's no pullback on that spending, and then that generates it's a f- fulfilling thing where it just generates more and more, and you will see the first signs of a reversal when potentially when the RBA starts reversing the interest rates and a lot of people who are potentially maybe have borrowed way too much for their house, mortgage stress, and then once when business finance becomes expensive, the, the employees start pulling back on employment and start you know, laying people off. That's when you see the first signs of you know, recession. So at this point in time, of how, how we see it is that uh, it's actually quite strong, even not only in Australia, but globally as well. Wonderful. Thank you. So to the, our listeners uh, and as sort of a team at Farm Owners Academy and as part of this Profitable Farmers podcast, we advocate being proactive, yes. um, forward thinking and strategic. And um, even in spite of some of the adversity that might be right in front of many of us now, um, I want to encourage each of us to be really proactive and strategic in how we think about our long-term growth and success. It doesn't have to all be from our core business and our farming asset. So um, with inspiration from Terry today and based on some of the the principles and lessons that, that he teaches and that we respect, I want to encourage you to think deeply about whether now or soon is a good time to get started um, in an expansion or an, a, a diversification outside your farming business. Mm-hmm. Terry, it's been wonderful as always to connect with you. Um, I know Andrew, Greg and I and the farm owners team um, are delighted to have the partnership that we do with you. We respect the way in which you teach and um, the journey that you take um, farming families on through the Freedom Trader. Um, thank you for all of that and thank you very much for your time and your insight and um, your comments today. You're very welcome, Jeremy, and uh, always a pleasure to be here and uh, be able to share and spread that message across farmers, you know, to get started. And uh, even if you're not getting, you, you can't get, you don't feel like getting, uh, it's not the right time, but always like what Jeremy said, forward thinking that um, this needs to be done. Um, and whether it's the right time or now or later, it's okay, but it needs to, be, to get done. So therefore you diversify the way away all the risk from you know, solely just having all the eggs in all one basket. Wonderful. And knowledge comes first. And Terry's mm. course, The Freedom Trader, is outstanding. Um, we do recommend it. And so um, if that is relevant for you, um, freedomtrader.com, Terry, is your website. Is that correct? Uh, it's actually a The Freedom Trader. So T-H-E, The Freedom, and uh, all one word. So thefreedomtrader.com. Perfect. Encourage you to have a look at that. So that wraps up this podcast. Ladies and gents, thank you again for joining us. Um, We look forward to checking in with you again. Terry, thank you. Always wonderful to speak with you and look forward to checking in with you again shortly. Thanks, Jeremy. Talk to you soon. All the best, guys, and bye for now.